Good morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. Wanted to um, offer honor and respect to the veterans today, <clears throat> this Veterans Day 2020. And uh, we're going to be rebroadcasting a show that we first broadcast six years ago, <clears throat> July 30th, uh, 2014. And uh, on this show, we open with a conversation, an interview with author <clears throat> Doris I. Mangrum, Mag- Magrum, Mangrum, sorry, <clears throat> whose uh, soiled identity from triumph to tragedy and back again tells the story of Darnell Cookson, former Marine and former felon, uh, <clears throat> as he rejoins society, a convicted felon, because um, he's not a felon when he was released. However, this is not a typical rehabilitation story, told in the protagonist's voice as if we were seated in his home one evening getting to know one another. We meet Darnell just as he arrives home from prison to a new wife, new child, and many relationships he has to restore, like that between he and his two older daughters by a prior marriage and his kid brother who is making a bit too much money fast. Darnell tries to hold his head up when applications are rejected and interviews have no follow-up calls, but it is hard. Darnell's reentry is a community venture. Each chapter ends with what Magrum, Mangrum calls choice moments, where her audience gets to imagine a what if in Live Your Life. The reader is invited to learn from Darnell's experiences while we also gear up to participate in an idea, idea infusion, which per chapter is a way to make the returning veteran or um, formerly incarcerated person, feel welcome and supported. And um, so anyway, it was a good book. I read it six years ago, so it's not like right on the fresh in my mind, but um, but I just wanted to share this this book with you and this conversation because recovery and healing is a community activity. A person can't um, reenter society without all of us participating, and a person can't get better without all of us participating. If one of us is sick, we're all sick. If one of us isn't feeling well, none of us are feeling well. And then that's followed by uh, musicians, um, Damu Ali and Paul Tillman Smith. They used to have a really wonderful jam on Sunday evenings, um, and they're going to be talking about that in um, in in this conversation. And, um, and, and Paul... Uh, Tillman Smith, as well as Damu, but Paul Tillman Smith, oh my goodness, he's got a lot of history. Um, and then that's followed by The Village of Peace. It's a film that um, <clears throat> was a part of the uh, San Francisco Jewish Film Festival in 2014, and it tells the story of the Hebrew Israelites, African Americans who moved from America to establish a home in Israel. And the directors and producers joined us on the air that day, six years ago, <laughs> to close the show. Um, <laughs> ben uh, Schroeder, who's the director and producer, and his brother Sam Schroeder. So anyway, and the website is villageofpeacemovie.com. And another film that was really good that I watched when I first learned about the Hebrew Israelites was called um, 
was it called? Dang. Oh, man, I just lost it. Oh, darn. I just lost the name of the film. It was about, because um, they, they practiced polygamy, and it was about the um, the perspective of the older, the first wife um, and her story as she prepares the family for the new wife. So anyway, without further ado, here is that show, and you can always let us know what you think by blogging at the website. Wanda's, well, not Wanda's Ticks, but I have a blog there too. <laughs> uh, but the uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Wanda's Picks, that's, there's another blog space there. Let me know what you think and what you'd like to hear more about. Peace and blessings. Wicked. I went into the show with Shoshana Dean, and each night I'd hear Shoshana sing this song. I'd like to do it for you now. Something has changed within me. Something is not the same. I'm through with playing by the rules of someone else's game. Too late for second guessing. Too late to go back to sleep It's time I trust my instincts Close my eyes And leave It's time to try Divine gravity I think I'll try Divine gravity you can't hold me down I'm through accepting limits Because someone said they're so Some things I can never change But till I try, I'll never know So tired of being afraid of Losing love I thought I had lost Well, if that's love It comes at much too high a cost Good morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and culture program of the African Sisters Media Network. And that was uh, Ben Vereen uh, singing Defying Gravity. And uh, I have on the air um, author Doris I. Magram, who is going to talk to us about her novel, A Soiled Identity from Triumph to Tragedy and Back Again. And um, I thought that this particular song would be a great shout out to her protagonist. <laughs> Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. Magram, how are you? Doing okay, thank you. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't you say that um that Daryl is uh defying gravity? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, sometimes when I think about it myself and the trials and tribulations <laughs> he went through I'm going like, you know what? This has to be a story of of uh, defying uh, against all odds and, and coming out on the other side and being all right. <laughs> Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's just amazing how this poor man going through so many tribulations. I mean, like, okay, <laughs> if one of them would have happened to him, it would have been enough. I mean, just being a veteran is enough. Yes, you know? yes. But then you have yes. him, he's a veteran. 
you know, he has PTSD, post-traumatic stress uh, syndrome. Mm-hmm. He had a drug problem. Mm-hmm. He went to prison. Oh, my goodness. You know, like, and then and then other stuff happens to him in the book, and you're like, for real? Like, really? Like, but you like, know really? what, though, Wanda, so much of this is, is real life for folks. I mean, maybe maybe a little bit more than some, but not yeah. for others. It, it, and, and, and I think that's, for me, that was one of the reasons for wanting to, to put it out there, because particularly as we talk about veterans and, and incarceration, it's usually not two words that people think of that should go together. <laughs> So that 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 makes people more aware that it's happening and happening more often than we would would imagine, perhaps as well. Mhm. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me tell our audience a little bit about you, and then we could jump right in and talk about um, you know your protagonist, um, Daryl Cookson, okay. uh, a former Marine. I mean, you know, they're like the top you know echelon of the military, and this boy, he's got like what? <laughs> Like, what happened to him? Like, really? 15 years of honorable military service? Really? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of it is, a lot of his problems come from not communicating, right? Some of his mm-hmm. his problems mm-hmm. and issues to mm-hmm. his, his family, to his wife, mm-hmm. so he could get help. He keeps on being in denial and trying to cure himself. Mm-hmm. When war is, war is, like, seriously traumatic. Yes. And, yes. yeah. Yeah, and and then you just show him having such a wonderful support system, you know, from his lovely father who checks in with him every morning, you know, and they pray together, and his sweet mother, and even his his brother, you know, the youngster, you know, young brother, younger brother, who he feels a lot of guilt around because of the example Mm -hmm. he set, and Mm -hmm. ex-wife from hell, man, oh my God. You know, <laughs> uh, yeah. I've had people tell me that read the book. I hated her. <laughs> yeah, but then you have that woman redeemers. I mean, your book is sort of like let me just tie up all the ends before we get to the end of this. Mm. It definitely is a novel, um, mm. but it's definitely sort of like an instruction book too. The way you have it set up. Yes, yes. I, I like to do that with my with my with my first novel. I did pretty not the same thing, but always something for food for thought. Because I I think we can get blind and and, and just become numbing to you know just reading the book and not really really getting it. Oh yeah, it was a good story. And so I like to add the nuggets uh, to make people think, or you know, well, not only about what's probably is going to happen next in the book, but then what what's going on with your life. And now then now that you know about these things that are written in this book because they do happen in real life although this is fiction what are you going to do about it what are some things that you can actually go and apply or help work with some others to make happen in your community Mhm right yeah well you are um a television um personality you have um you started uh stop the madness practical ways to practical ways to influence the Incarceration Crisis, uh, Berkeley Educational Television um, on Comcast Channel 28 and other circuits throughout the Bay Area. Uh, you yes. began producing and hosting that show um, last year. Is that correct? That's correct. We are actually, we what we did was we were getting, we got about 10 in the can now, and we actually started mm-hmm. to schedule. The first one will air on August 6th oh, at uh, 1 o'clock. That's a Saturday. I believe <laughs> August 6th. Okay. Yes, yeah, so we're excited about that. 
Uh, we, we look at issues around the incarceration crisis. We have, you know, people who come on with uh, programs that are, you know, working to impact. We have individuals who have been successful in their reunification, who've been out and are now, you know, contributing to the community because we want people to be aware of, you know, because sometimes what you hear on the mainstream news media is all the negative about people whose lives have been impacted by incarceration. We want to not only talk about the things that are challenging about the incarceration crisis, but also the positive things and how people can get involved and be a part of, of influencing on a positive way to uh, take this thing and, and chop it up bit by bit into small pieces so it's manageable again. Mm-hmm. August 6th actually is next Wednesday, so it's a week from today. Okay, yes, and, it is. Uh, Thank yeah. you. <laughs> oh, no problem. I want to make sure people tune in on the right day so they don't say, yeah. oh, I missed it, darn. <laughs> so they can catch the debut broadcast. Yeah, yeah, probably um, when we talk more about the book, seems like a lot of what you've learned at setting up, um, you know, these different uh, interviews and shows for your first season come mm-hmm. from uh, – you know things you might have learned uh they show up in the book is that it seems like mm-hmm. it because you have a lot of those type of um uh, re, uh resources um hypothetically uh in in the book itself at the end of each chapter do some mm-hmm. of what you does that some of it show up there is that how you are able to do so much because the book just well came you know out, right? i have actually been in this Still working with people whose lives have been impacted by separation and reunification for over 25 years. And oh. with that work has come a compilation of ideas based upon real life, you know, things that I've seen people go through, things that I've watched families have to struggle with, things that I know that people who come back home deal with in the reunification process. So it makes it really easy. Unfortunately, that's a good thing and a bad thing. As a writer, it's good to have all of this information. But it's a negative thing to think that so many people are struggling out there, and by and large, I find that if people have not been directly impacted or know someone and have pretty close to someone who's been impacted, they have no clue of what's happening collaterally to people once they go inside. All but many have challenges coming back because by and large, we on the outside have a way of shutting people out once they've been marked with the stain of incarceration. And and oftentimes, it, it it's you know, it, it goes collaterally onto the family as well because, you know, depending on where you live and who you are and who you're connected to, you may or may not be able to come out. And I say that because people struggle with the possibilities of losing their homes if they're in subsidized housing. They struggle with people, you know, treating them differently at work. Children uh, run the risk of being bullied or talked about at school with a parent who is incarcerated. So it becomes this this thing that we as a community need to be made more aware of that we might be guilty of personally, but certainly we may know others who have done it so that we can now step up to the plate and say, you know what, this is a human being too. Their family didn't do anything, and now they've paid their, they've paid their dues. If it's someone who truly wants to move on with their life, we need to be a part of helping them get that second chance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It definitely, I, I see that uh, reflected in... Um, the character's um, thinking around what's going on with himself and how he knows he has a debt mm-hmm. to his family and to his community, mm-hmm. and he has to show them that he's changed, that they don't have to necessarily mm-hmm. believe it because he says it or believe it because he's out walking among them, mm-hmm. and, and how the community gradually comes around. It takes a long time, like almost oh, a absolutely. half day <laughs> <laughs> before it happens. 
Uh, and yeah. that's the truth. It is because sometimes you have to, you know, you have to almost put it in people's face because if you've done wrong, all that all can people can see is that wrong. That that particular part of you be, looms large in people's eyesight. They don't they forget about anything else that might be good about the individual. And so with what the work that I'm doing and you know and advocacy and going across the country and speaking is to get people to take a look at it from a different viewpoint to say you know what I never thought about it that way. Or, you know, why can't I see it that way? But if all you're being fed is negative, then that's what you're going to zero in on if you have no other point of reference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and you also, you've, you've been um, a radio host, uh, gosh, for quite a number of years. Um, let's see. Uh, let's uh, say Diana. Is that how you pronounce it? Let's say Diana, yes. Yes, say Diana oh. is uh, Swahili for help each other. And that's the oh. name of my company, Sadiana Productions, Sadiana Works, Sadiana Fuse Publishing. And I picked that name, Wanda, on purpose because I want it to embody, you know, what this is all about. I want people to find their place, find their their niche, find their way to jump in because each of us has something to give. Now, everybody's not comfortable working with the incarcerated or the, the Marines, the formerly, former uh, or the veteran. But each of us can find a space. Grandma, who has these four children under the age of 10 because she's stepped up to keep her family intact as a result of her son being incarcerated. We know she's struggling. We watch her struggle. We talk about the struggle, but then we don't do anything beyond the declaration. My work is around helping people understand how, yes, you could start a support group. You could start a knit club. You could go in and mow grandma's lawn once a week. Uh, you know, these kinds of things to help people see there are many ways to influence the crisis without directly impacting, without directly working with the incarcerated or formerly incarcerated individual if you're not comfortable there. So I I talk to people and show people many uh, ways that they can jump in and, and make things happen. There has been um, a family transportation program that was started from a woman who heard me speak. She started a transportation program uh, so that families could get out to see their loved ones because it's so important for people to stay connected with families uh, during the time that they're down because, let's face it, uh, behind the walls is not pretty. <laughs> and so to have some positive human contact is, cr- is crucial for that person to have a, a better time or a, or a somewhat easier time in reintegrating back into society because at the end of the day, 95% of people are coming back home, and that's kind of some of the times people forget that everyone, most people are coming back at some point, and we have to be ready to receive them, but we also have to have them in a position where uh, it, it's a greater chance that they'll be able to reunify because they've been connected to someone on the outside. They know that someone cares, and that gives them hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, uh, folks can't listen to you uh, on your show on KDYA Gospel, 1190 AM. Uh, that's because that ended last year. Yes, and then your, <laughs> your other radio show, it's also... Um, uh, is no longer happening. Uh, Pivotal Parenting Point sounds really nice too. Um, uh, you know, a nice show. But but I but people can you know get ready to tune in <clears throat> to Stop the Madness: Practical Ways to Influence the Incarceration Crisis on Television next yes. week, next Wednesday. And you yes. are a nationally recognized motivational speaker, separation and reunification author, award-winning filmmaker, editorial columnist family advocate and television talk show host and producer, which we've also, you know, just shared with people some of the different um, 
uh, places you've been able, you know, you've been on the air. Uh, you're an authority on matters concerning the pangs of long separation and the reunification process. Your career spans over three decades with 25 of those years dedicated to families of affected by incarceration, deployment, study abroad, or any reason causing prolonged periods apart from loved ones. And all of those prolonged periods are not uh, negative because you mentioned um, study abroad or, you know, maybe um, even people who are teaching abroad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... um, We've been we've been teasing people with uh, a soiled identity. Uh, <laughs> and I was just so yeah, how how did you happen to uh, develop this character? You mentioned this is not your first book. So mm-hmm. what 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 are the names of your other books, and how is um, this particular one um, a continuation along, you know, similar themes, or you know, or or something really different? How is how is Daryl MacArthur Cookson Jr. Uh, A.K.A. D. Mac, forty years old, born and reared in the Midwest. <laughs> D. Mac is different just simply because he is a Marine, uh, and and I say that because he, you know, we don't often think we think of that uh, when we think of the military, we think of culture and strength, and, and because it's typically the two are not put together, military and 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 incarcerated individual. It makes people think like, wow, I never even thought about that happening. And I, on purpose, you you said a little bit earlier that, well, this is the you know top top notch. We think of the Marines as the you know the the top of the top of the chain, in, in terms of military. So on purpose, I I made sure that he was it was a Marine. But we, how could a Marine go down? Uh, and in my other books, they have my other book is um, after the bungee jump. There's still a lot of jerking going on, and it's about a mother who deals with, um, you know, eight years of incarceration, follows the mother, follows the family at the same time. So when the reader is done, they have a better uh, understanding of what's happening on with the person on the inside, some of the challenges they are experiencing, but they also are looking at the collateral piece that's happening to the family. So when they're done, they go, they have their eyes are open to like, oh, my goodness, I never thought about this. But they also have an opportunity to see themselves and some of the, some of the challenges that they experience in the community uh, and on a personal level for the children and the family and also some of the things that's going on behind the walls. My other books are booklets. I have one called Reentry Successful, um, uh, Finding It to, the, to a Better End. That's for the person coming out. Then 101 Ways to Support the Formerly Incarcerated for People Who Are Community Members. Then I have a guide for uh, families dealing with separation. And then I have one that's called Children of the Incarcerated Who Will Hear Their Voices. Those are booklets, and I've written a training packet to go along with my bungee jump book. And there's also a Life Look pro- uh, program that goes along with the Soiled Identity, the, my newest my newest novel. And so with that um, has come, uh, I recognize that, you know what, all my books are about reunification and, and separation. That's what I talk about. That's what I speak about. That's, and so I said I wanted to make sure that people are clear that that's the type of author I am and that everything that I write will, I believe, be about that. Now, who knows? I'm, I may switch up into the future, but I, I see no reason to because I'm finding that there's so many people whose eyes are opened, Wanda, when I, when I speak and talk about, talk about things that they'd never heard from that particular, that particular way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So tell us a little, share a little bit about, um, you know, uh, DMAC and... Uh, Sort of his reentry process. You know, he has he has a routine that he sort of steps to, and or maybe you know you could share. Yeah, um, 
I don't know, a moment with whatever you decide, because there are a lot of great moments. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, you've already mentioned that he had a loving family, which is is crucial for for people who are coming back, because at the end of the day, I'm pretty sure that our our listeners are, are... aware of the fact that people have a challenge when they come back. They're, they have this scarlet letter on their back, particularly people coming back with a felony uh, and a drug felony because there's so, many, there's so much secondary punishment with challenges finding jobs, challenges you know, with housing if, they, if their family is not connected to them. So in the book, this particular gentleman, our Marine, comes home to a loving family. I'll talk about his first transition uh, from the Marines. When he comes home with, from the Marines, he's struggling with PTSD, and as Wanda has already stated, he uh, wanted to, to help himself versus finding help on the outside because he comes from this culture of strength of the Marines, and he had no visible wounds, so I don't need to get any help. I'm going to work this thing myself. So he was using prescription drugs to keep you know everything in check. Well, you know, with anything that if you don't have it monitored, it can have the possibility of getting out of control, and that's exactly what happened with our our, our main character, Dmac. It gets out of control. He ends up becoming uh, addicted, if you will, to prescription drugs, but he uses the sale of illicit drugs to support his habit of prescription drugs because he doesn't want to go to the VA to get support. And what he does is he goes around to doctor after doctor hopping to get his prescription drugs filled. But over time, he slips along the way. And even though he was doing his sales in in a place that we don't often think drug sales are done at corporate campuses to to, uh, executive directors and CEOs at our corporate campuses, he wasn't being caught, if you will, from the the law knowing that he was there. He told somebody or did something and gave away his trust, and it landed him in prison for almost six years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, when you want to read something from the book? I will. Let me do that. I, I'll actually go to the place where... He is um, getting ready to come out of prison, and he kind of gives that reader an overview of his prison life. So I'll do a couple pages from there. Okay. The start of my prison time to the end of my sentence was five years, six months, seven days. That represents how long I served the penal system and gave too much of my life in an unfortunate way. Often the dashes between dates are used when someone dies. In so many ways, I did die during that period. However, it was that death that gave me a renewed sense of purpose. The dates denote the lost time I spent in that human outhouse. Before my incarceration, I knew prison was bad, but I never really thought of it as a human outhouse. One day, a fellow podmate said, Man, this place is a concrete graveyard, a hole designed to suck up and rot lives from the inside out. His words never left me, and they will actually serve as a major motivation for helping me stay out. While incarcerated, I had a lot of time to evaluate myself. I spent a great deal of time reflecting on the values my mother and father instilled in me. The tenants of the Marine Corps were always present and helped me stay focused. I was determined. I would would again make my family proud and make amends for the wrongs I'd done. Mm. Yeah, 
share something um uh you know shows his his uh, interaction with uh his wife who is who has yeah that talks about her background um which is you know kind of interesting that that you would pick for him uh the character a wife who literally really understood you know sort of what he was going to because mm-hmm. of her her you know the way you know she was raised Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, let me tell them about that part of it. Oh, okay. yes. I, I I think that it, it was an interesting piece that came to me because I've known of that happening in real life for, for families okay. where the, the, the wife had had a situation like that. So I thought that would be an interesting piece to have this very understanding wife. And his wife was a woman whose father had been incarcerated. And the mother, her mother had played an integral part in that family staying together and that father and husband being respected by his children because of the way he was set up to the children. She was told that, you know, father made a mistake, and he's a good man who made a mistake. She kept his picture uh, in front of the children. They often, you know, visited him. They wrote letters to him and vice versa. So when he came home, he came home to a loving family. Now, that didn't mean that the community welcomed him, but because he was surrounded with and insulated by the love of his family, he was able to move on with a, with a successful life as well. So with her having had that knowledge as a child of the kinds of things her father experienced on the outside from the community, with the way she knew her mother had set up um, the importance of them recognizing it was a mistake and that it didn't define who he was and that he was still a man to be proud of, it helped the children not go to school with their heads hung down. They couldn't be bullied about their father. They kept their arms and arms and uh, and their and their head up high, because they they had a, a great man who had made a wrong choice. All of us have made wrong choices, and and most of us have done something that, if caught, would have landed us in prison. <laughs> and so we're we're some of the lucky ones. But we have to remember that. Not only uh, are are we lucky in that we've not been to prison, but we also need to recognize that people are coming back, and they're coming back 600,000-plus annually to our communities. And it's important for us to to wrap around folks, find a way. Everybody doesn't want to be, and I need to say that. Everybody doesn't want to be helped. Some people want to go back inside. Some people have decided before they come out that they're going to go back because they don't feel comfortable on the outside. It's called institutionalization. And so they'll do something just to get back inside because the world treats them so poorly or they just decided that I feel more comfortable on the inside. And so with that comes our, uh, the community's uh, responsibility to find ways in our churches, in our communities, in our organizations as individuals to rally around people as we can or their families or their children with mentoring uh, or, or in the communities in some other way. So, yes, um, because she had had this model of, of, of strength by her mother, she was able to carry that model of strength onto her husband, and she understood perfectly, which made it a beautiful story in light of all the other mess that he had to deal with on the flip side of it from his his encounter with his first wife and the situation that involved that. I don't want to give everything away. <laughs> but right, right. He had some, some really serious challenges, but because he had a strong wife, uh, who supported him and almost understood it. it. It almost came out in some ways that she almost understood it better than he did and knew, and it didn't say that, but 
it was implied that she she was just kind of that person that had the the right answer at the right time, and and he was just always so grateful for that, and he needed it <laughs> with all the other things that he was dealing with, <laughs> which you know the 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 the. Prison time represents the tragedy of his life. You know, we I call it a soiled identity from triumph to tragedy and back again. Obviously, his triumph was when he came home from um, came home from the Marines as a decorated Marine with the parade and the big program that they had in the in the little town. And you know, he had the big sign and the big banners and everything welcoming him home. Then the second part of it was the tragedy. The tragedy was him being incarcerated. And, and having to deal with those six years downtime, that he had a chance to do some introspective looks at himself and how he wanted to move on with his life. But that homecoming was way different. There was only a little sign on the porch of his family, but he was happy for that because they had stuck by him and they still loved him and were going to support him. And then the back again was how he triumphed over all the things that he went through with his family, with the challenges, with you know finding work, with the disdain, the look, the condescension of the community, and he was able to rise above it in spite of it. So that is from tragi- from triumph to tragedy and back again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. I didn't realize our time would fly like this. <laughs> uh, we'll definitely have to have you on again because I want to read your other book, the one about um, the bungee you know, jump. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We'll make really sure you get one. Okay. Okay. Yeah, but I want to ask you, um, because it still doesn't quite, your bio still doesn't quite capture how you happen to be interested in this particular community um, and sort of what your training is in, you know, with uh, being able to uh, to minister literally to, to um, you know, community families and individuals who have had to, you know, come back from uh, from being away. You know, emotionally mm-hmm. estranged, mm-hmm. physically estranged, or psychologically estranged uh, and spiritually estranged from community and from that kind of support. Um, some people having it, but other people not. And mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, sort of, how you happen to, you know, come into this particular type of of, of work. Well, you know, it starts back from when I was a child. The model I had in my layer one of my life, my the genetics and the environment. My mom and dad grew up poor, but they both made a good life for themselves. They became college professors, but they never forgot where they came from. And with that, they were always helping. And so my model was helping. So in about 1989, I became aware of, uh, I had been working with families for about five years at that time prior to, I became aware of of an opportunity at one of the correctional facilities to work with the families. And so with that, I began to hear their conversation around the struggles that they were having, not only with getting out to the prison, you know, what it was like, you know, with money being missing from that person who was incarcerated, what it was like for the children. So I understood, oh, my goodness, I never even thought about this. Then I had an opportunity to translate from the working at the correctional facility with the families to work inside for over 22 years with the incarcerated parent and connecting them with their children. So I got a chance to see full circle what was happening on the inside and the outside, worked with relative caregivers, worked with grandparents caring for grandchildren, did a mentoring program, did family preservation. So I had an opportunity to see from many vantages all of the challenges and now put together in this work 
uh, a package deal, if you will, for people who can feel comfortable on either on either side of the fence, if you will, or either side of the bars, and to understand that it's not something that communities, churches, organizations, corrections, law enforcement, judicial system is going to be able to do alone. Each of us has to find our place and our place to jump in. And thus I call my company, Sadiana, help each other, because that's what we need to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> great, great. Wow. Um, let's see. I know uh, we, we told our audience, let me see, my other guest hasn't, hasn't joined us yet. So um, a okay. couple of minutes uh, or less, uh, I wanted you to, to share with our audience, because um, I mentioned earlier that your book is, uh, kind of, um, it's it's like a workbook. Um, mm, okay. You begin each chapter with a wonderful, wonderful section where you you inspire us with uh, some words of wisdom from many, many people. Some we know and some we don't, which is really mm-hmm. nice. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Like Carl Bard and some mm-hmm. other people that that people might be familiar with. Um, uh, Harriet Tubman. And mm-hmm. uh, and then and then at the end of the chapter, after we sort of got really captivated and and um, captured by you know whatever was going on in in the protagonist's life in this part of you know the story, then you give mm-hmm. us a choice moment. What's coming? Yes. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. live your life. <laughs> and then yeah. idea infusion for the family. It's like so you don't just. You re- you really remember his life because at each at each juncture, you give us something to do to incorporate what it is that he has experienced in a mm-hmm. week to interpret it in a way that is applicable to our lives and yes. and to our community. Yes. And so I was wondering if you could maybe speak to that a little bit. And um, oh, there's my guest. Yes, yeah, speak to that for a minute. Then people just have to get the book and let people know how they can get the book. Okay. <laughs> Well, the choice moments and the life, uh, live your life along with the uh, idea infusion was an idea that I, I, I like to always, as I said earlier, to make sure that people think and they kind of, you know, uh, get an, a real real feel for the book. And so the choice moment usually is about something that's in the book, but the live your life is something for food for thought. I'll, I'll read one of them quickly. Acting with courage is an interesting concept. It takes the deepest courage to first be self-honest and decide that we will move forward in integrity and examine our motives before making our moves. And then the idea infusion is going to be something that might be for schools, it might be for the community, it might be for the faith base, it might be for you as an individual. Um, One of them was um, have a Veterans Day remembrance each month. Have a veteran come into your classroom, you know, and some of the kinds of things that, you know, well, maybe people hadn't thought about. You know, we do things every Veterans Day, but we don't think about necessarily doing every something every month to keep it in, in, people's, in people's mind about the sacrifice that was made. And I'd like to read this one quote, and um, hopefully it will be one that people will enjoy. We are not the same persons this year as last, nor are those we love. It is a happy chance if we, changing, continue to love a changed person. I thought that that was such a great, such a great quote because we all change, and sometimes we we look at the person who we think has changed and not recognizing the changes in ourselves. So it's important as you continue to do whatever you do to understand that we all change and we don't always change together, but we try to love each other even in our changes. My book can be purchased at Amazon.com or at DorisIMangram.com slash products. My name is spelled D-O-R-I-S-I. 
M-A-N-G-R-U-M.com slash products. Thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll certainly have you on again. Congratulations okay. on a wonderful book. All right. Thank you so much, Wanda. It was great talking with you. All okay, right. bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we're joined in the studio by Damu um, Sudi Ali and Paul Tillman Smith. Good morning. How are you good both? Mo- I'm good doing morning. good. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. Great, great. Good to have nice. you finally on the air. Um, <laughs> uh, Paul, we've been trying to get you on for quite a while now, and it's just really fabulous that you could join um, Damu to talk about the Sunday jam, uh, jazz jams um, that you have um uh, set up and produced, and um, yeah, why don't we talk about that a little bit, and then um, I will read some of your bio because it's it's um it's you've just done so much, it's just really awesome. You should have a book. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> yeah, when I when I put, when I put that together, I did realize, my God, maybe it's too long. Because <laughs> 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 when, when I give my resume to people to ask them. They read it. They, I, I think it's too long for them. I gotta probably try to condense it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, because cause any any one even any one paragraph, you know, um, you know your your work with Oaktown Jazz Workshop and the late Khalil Shahid. I mean, that would be enough. You know, your you know the the Big Belly Blues Band that you um, uh, that you you know the music that you produce, and then you have a new Big Belly Blues Band CD that. Um, it's on your label, Chump Change Records, and then you've got, um, you know, your uh, your your bed ballads with, you know, a creme de la creme, you know, lineup of musicians and artists, and um, and then you know we have this organization that that you've started, um, the Bay Area Jazz Society, which is presenting these um, Sunday Jazz Jam sessions. Right. So yeah, and then you've got the Juneteenth that you started in Berkeley, which is how old now? Uh, let's see. Well, I did it for 22 years. I, I think it's probably <laughs> about. Uh, I think I've been gone for four or five. Yeah, I think I've been gone. You know, I haven't been keeping up because we didn't part in, in in a friendly kind of way. You know, you know that, that that's what happens when with with boards. If you know, I was never on the Juneteenth board. I. I, I co-founded it, but the, my friend who put the board together said he decided he didn't want me to be on the board. He wanted me to function independent because he knows how when you get a bunch of our folks together, <laughs> sometimes we can get you know get a little strong in there. And then he, he he was correct about that because anytime I've been in, in meetings at Seaboard, it's just not my style. <laughs> you know, to be, I'm, our, you know, musicians are bureaucrats you, normally. You know. Being a bureaucrat, being in that kind of world is a, a little different if you're not used to it. You know, most musicians spend their time at home practicing four or five hours a day, going out for a walk, you know, you know, stuff like that. Until you get to the point where you have to try to make a career, then you have to kind of start paying a little closer attention to bureaucracy. But uh, yeah. So I, I may get back involved with the Juneteenth at, at some point, but I'm I'm staying kind of silent right now. I'll, in the next few weeks, I'll kind of see, you know, what I should do. And I and I actually asked those brothers to start that festival for two years. I bugged them, for, uh, RD, for two years to start that festival because before that I was doing concerts in Mosswood Park, 
and uh, Provo Park. And I was uh, um, a supervisor for the Alameda County Neighborhood, Neighborhood Arts Program. So I had a lot of other artists working with me, and we would do these concerts in Mosswood Park. And, and uh, my friends from uh, Merchants, South Berkeley Merchants, R.D., he owns owns People's Bazaar. He would always come to those concerts. So when I bugged him about the, doing a, a festival, a street fair, they kind of already had an idea that maybe this could work. And that's interesting the way that that happened, by the way. Uh, we had a black mayor in Berkeley at the time. Um, uh, oh, boy, I can't think of his name now. I'm getting old. But, uh, you know, they were able to get the, all the necessary um, um Things going so they could get the street open and and uh, did you ever did, did you ever come to it early on? Um, so the festival when it first started. I think I might have come. I mean, I think it was it might have been during your tenure. When did you stop um, producing it? Uh, well, let's see. If I ran it for twenty two years, I think it started in eighty eighty four. Um, it was just funny. I was thinking about it the first year my. My music budget was $1,700. I think that was the year I had uh, Bobby Hutchinson, John Handy, and Pearl Saunders all wow. came and played for $100 a piece. <laughs> wow. Two <laughs> wow. of my, my friends, you know what I mean? They knew I was trying to, what I was trying to do. And, wow. And uh, I, I think about that now. If you try to get that band to get it, probably cost you about 25000 <laughs> Yeah, that's... <laughs> get those people together. Oh, God. Hmm. Wow. Matter of fact, I think someone tried to uh, call John recently, and, uh, and he said, "Well, I could do it for five thousand. Oh, <laughs> I said, times have changed. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, yes, yeah, so we're trying. We're trying to do uh, the Barry Jazz Society. If you want to ask me about that, uh, mm-hmm. I think yeah. back in the day uh, there was a doctor that 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 started the, the original Barry Jazz Society. I think David Hardeman player who was uh, head of the music department at uh, San Mateo Junior College, was the president for a while. In fact, he and I are going to get together because he's going to show me some of the old paperwork uh, moving forward. Uh, you know, I was thinking, you know, all these jazz organizations that are popping up in, uh, in, in California, in the Bay Area, SF Jazz, is Berkeley School of Music, Stanford, pretty much all ran by, by white men. And and I think we need an organization uh, that should be run by black men, uh, you know. And, and I have to look to Khalil Shahid because Khalil actually was, uh, with Old Town Workshops was was getting funded to do concerts in the parks and, and educational. He had his educational component and did really well with what he was doing. But uh, on on his passing, his organization basically uh, went back to the white men are run, running it, which I don't understand. But um, and I, you know, it's very difficult for black musicians to to go to, you know, considering their contributions to this music to to have to go back go back to dealing with white men in terms of their music. We need our own organization. I mean, we want to be multicultural and, and all inclusive, but we want to be making decisions at the top, and we want to be able to try to. Get grants, and we want to, you know, uh, we want to try to do things for ourselves. And, we, wow. and uh, so that's why the Bay Jazz Society is very much needed, and it's coming into fruition. And all the musicians I talk to say, "Yeah, that's it. That's what we need to do." Yeah, but you know, I certainly 
don't want to be president. I'm not an organizer. So I, I was actually thinking about trying to find a, uh, a black female musician to to, to put at put at the front. Uh, but I, you know, right now uh, I have the website uh, BarryJazzSociety.com. Uh, so now that I'm going to be less busy because I've been extremely busy over the last six months with all putting all these albums together and getting the manufacturing of it. Uh, the artwork together. The, you know, I was in the studio for t- two years doing that Big Belly Blues Band album. That took a long time because I, I used all live musicians, which is a rarity. Musicians don't use all live musicians normally. Uh, uh, making a record these days, you know, everybody's got the drum machine or, or the, even the digital. I didn't do digital. I did analog, which is old school uh, with two-inch tape. And uh, so that took me... Uh, Quite a, I'm just now getting ready to put that out. And at the same time, I've got two other corresponding records coming out at the same time. So, so <laughs> but now, yeah, now I'll be able to start working on the Bay Area Jazz Society, and, and uh, I'm really excited about that concept, especially in regards to you know black men coming together and, and having a. Uh, participation in the say so and helping in the direction we need to go in and and putting in grants just like SF Jazz and stand, you know and trying to get money for what we want to do in our communities uh, about our music and preserving our music and performing our music going into schools a lot of what Khalil was was starting to do he was going into schools pres- making presentations to the children about different instruments and how they work and so forth and um, you know, I worked with his uh, Old Town Jazz workshops for for a couple of years. Uh, so, really, that's what we that's what we need to do. We need to con- really continue what Khalil's doing, but we need to be uh, in a position to be able to make decisions. We're not getting a lot of gigs, uh, uh, a lot of work in our communities because there's nowhere to work. Uh, so we have to be able to have money so we can make our own presentations of our music. Because, uh, I mean, if you look around Art and Soul, I bet you if you go down to Art and Soul, you, you won't find any of the very musicians down there working, you know. <laughs> you know, when you look at uh, all of these, when you look at SF Jazz, most of the musicians that are working are coming from out of, out of California, coming. Uh, you know, none of us here are working. Uh, I don't even know if they have anybody really black on their board. If they do, normally it's someone that we're not familiar with that's out of town. I know there's a brother that works at Stanford. Uh, I'm not familiar with him. I'm sure he has a, a, a amazing credentials. Uh, but, you know, I'm just looking at Bay Area musicians I know that I uh, associate with that come to the jam sessions, that, the few that they are. I'm in the 57th Street Gallery. Uh, the owner called me uh Needing a loan to keep the place open. As a matter of fact, I may still give him a loan. Got to call him when I get off the phone with you at some point, because he's going to have to close down because he's not uh, making enough money to stay open and pay the musicians what they need to be paid. And, I mean, and that's a wonderful uh, thing that excuse, he did. Excuse me, Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, give us the details about. Tell us about about the jams, jazz jam. Um, because okay, so well, far oh, you Sunday. haven't you haven't told us about yeah where they're happening what's happening and then I wanted um Damu to jump in and talk about you know this Please past Sunday me. at Southern Cafe yeah. so tell us where like where you host okay, um, I the, think uh, you host at the Jamaican I'm at, I'm Cafe at the King- or something yeah Kingston? I'm at the Kingston uh, 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 two restaurant which is on the corner of Telegraph and West Grand 
uh, it's an Ethiopian, it's a Jamaican restaurant, and I've never given a restaurant five stars. It's a great restaurant. I've got uh, Robert Stewart, who uh, travels okay. around the world uh, with Wynton Marcellus. I've got Carl Lackett on guitar, who plays with us on Sundays also with Sudi uh, at the Southern Cafe. Uh, and uh, Hashima Williams this week on bass and Spencer Allen on uh, piano, and we're trying to uh, create enough enough, uh, success there where we can have a special guest vocalist uh, every Wednesday, so we're still working on that. Same thing with the Southern Cafe with uh, Sudi. Sudi had a vocalist this week, uh, uh, but uh, talking to the owner, he's, he's struggling. He loves the music, and he's supporting the music, but uh, until we can build up the crowd enough to be able to afford to have more money for a vocalist, uh, right now we have Alex Smith on bass over there with us, and uh, Sudi's in charge. I love working with Sudi. He's he's a, he's a, a wonderful uh, spokesman for the music, and been around a long time and, and deserves respect and honor. And uh, I'm just happy to be there. That's on. Uh, I believe 2200 MacArthur, and we start over there at 5 to 8. It's a soul food buffet. The food is fabulous. And uh, oh, my session starts uh, uh, from 7 to 10 on Wednesdays. This evening I'll be there uh, 7 to 10. Right, and and um, and Robert, he plays uh, saxophone, right? Yeah, Robert's a sax- saxophone player, and believe it or not, he's a pretty decent drummer, so he gives me a break <laughs> so I can go around and, and, and meet and greet. Uh, he'll, he'll play drums on the last set. The middle set is we open it up for uh, about thirty minutes uh, for any special guests we have out there. But it's like, that's like a supper club, so you can't have a lot of musicians just coming in and getting a glass of water and standing around. I, when they do that, I end up spending a hundred dollars if I know them. If they don't have money to buy a drink or whatever to be there, I'll, I'll always make sure that they they're welcomed and they. And, and I support them, but that is a supper club, so it's nowhere, nowhere really to sit around. So I try to tell the musicians, well, if you're coming, make sure you're hungry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, neat. Yeah, Robert's been on the air before. Um, uh, he uh, he and I go way back. He was a former student of mine when he was um, uh-huh. in uh, first grade. Yeah. Oh, wow. oh. Oh. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. No, Robert, a long time. His father time. was a trumpet player. That's how I know him. Oh, okay. Okay, neat. Excellent, excellent. So, so Damu, talk to us about, about your experience uh, this past Sunday. Uh, is this um, is this the first, uh, does this, uh, the jam session, does it happen every Sunday? And if so, um, how's it been going? Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, I just want to say how, um, you know, how thrilled I am. <laughs> to be a part of this project, and to be working with Paul. I mean, he's just a, a compendium of information. And like you said, you know, I mean, all the things he accomplished, the brothers just got a very generous, beautiful heart, and trying to push this music along, and he's got so much information and knowledge about it, you know, about the whole scene here. So first I just want to say that. Uh, express my appreciation to to Paul, but I've already expressed my appreciation to him many times before. But it's just so wonderful to be working with with Paul and and Carl Lockett. Just the caliber of musicians that I've uh, been given this opportunity to play with is just a great experience. Uh, but to answer your question, yeah, it's it's going to be every Sunday 
hopefully. But it's like uh, Paul was uh, was saying, we have to really kind of generate some support uh, from the community for these events. And I think uh, I think Paul's uh, organization, Bay, Bay Area Jazz Society, is the way to go. It's you know it, it's, it's already there, so I'm definitely pledging my 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 support to that because we all need to be uh, patrons of of the arts and especially patrons of jazz because uh, it, it's quickly being swallowed up, you know, like Paul uh, alluded to uh, by. Uh, you know, non-black people, and we were the people who uh, who, in, who uh, invented this music and who continue to be the innovators in this in this music. So I would just say to people, please come by. Um, uh, I think it's two thousand MacArthur, isn't it, Paul? Uh, I think it's two thousand. Yeah, two thousand. Yeah. yeah, please come two, by. Two, two blocks down from Fruitvale. Yes, right. Uh, about about two blocks uh, west of, uh, of, of Fruit uh, Fruitvale, on MacArthur Boulevard, is uh, Southern Cafe, and uh, delicious food, and 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 outstanding music. I mean, you know, please come out and and, and listen to it because this is uh, this is uh, this is historical. Even I I would even go as far as to say that because the the music is 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 happening. The music is happening every Sunday uh, at um, the Southern Cafe uh, at 2000 uh, MacArthur Boulevard. And uh, yeah, Adamo, you didn't you didn't tell us what happened. What happened oh. on Sunday? Oh, what happened on Sunday? Okay, yeah. what happened on Sunday? Well, yeah, put us Sunday? put us there. You know, tell oh. us about the musicianship, and okay. you know, tell us tell tell our audience who might not remember the many conversations oh. we've had with you okay. and your son on the air about your gigs, which is how you and Paul hooked up because he played yeah, um, in one of your gigs at the Fifth Century Gallery, yeah. uh, where your son was was you know sharing some of his music as well. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, in our in our closing minutes. Maybe you could talk about the specificity of what happened on Sunday. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, okay. Well, we missed we missed Paul. Uh, he he couldn't be with us uh, Sunday, but we had a a, a a new drummer that I had never played with before, with Mark Lee. Very exciting drummer, uh, you, you know. And 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 so that that's always uh, a good thing when there's a, a good uh, feeling. Uh, between the mus- musicians on the stage and 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 you know, uh, uh, but uh, what happened was um, uh, let's see. I, I'll just give you the the people who played uh, Sunday. Um, Carl Lockett was on uh, guitar, and Carl is just such a um, important part of the band. His 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 um, comprehension of the music. His uh, uh, ability on his instrument, his articulation of jazz is just top notch, you know. And he's very inspiring to everybody in the band, you know. Um, so Jimmy Smith's a guitar player, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Paul, uh, 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 Carl, uh, having Carl on the gig is just uh, uh, well, you know, it's a godsend. He's that good. And 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 then we have Alex Smith on bass, who is very uh, uh, very good bass player. Alex plays with me in a in a group called First Edition, and um, we had uh, a new vocalist come and and sit in with us, uh, Lisa Jack. Jack. 
Yeah, and uh, hopefully Lisa's going to be back this coming Sunday. Uh, she's an exciting. Uh, she was an was an exciting part of the music uh, on Sunday. The people really loved her, and the musicians loved her, and that's always. Uh, a good combination when you have a band that really is feeling the singer and the singer is really feeling the band too she just stepped right on in there first time performing with the band and and so we had a great time in there i mean you could tell it on the you know when you, the audience you know the audience was a very good audience very receptive audience and people who were obviously uh, knowledgeable about music and jazz. You know, musicians can tell that, you know, who's knowledgeable and who's... Uh, but people came up and, uh, you know, encouraged us and, and told us they were going to continue to support it because they they love, they love the music. So uh, as to the, 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 the music that we presented, we presented, uh, we play uh, all kinds of jazz. You know, we play uh, bebop, we played some bebop, but mostly we played, I guess, what, uh, uh, if you want to um, categorize music, uh, I, I guess what we played was uh, a lot of smooth jazz and uh, some classics, some standards, especially for uh, when the vocalists uh, performed. But we, we, we performed the whole gamut of, of jazz. That's what's so interesting and so um, <laughs> different. I would I would even say about this band because we 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 play anything. Yeah, um, I was wondering um, if you could maybe um, tell us like who who comes to the uh, the jam sessions and what does it mean jam session? Does it mean that people can bring their horns or their okay. uh, they can they can share the keyboard with you, um, you know, yeah. um, and come up and play themselves or 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 you know bring some music and and sing a song? How how does that work? And and who's who's invited to these uh, sessions? Okay, Wanda, you had some very 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 very. Uh, penetrating questions there, and uh, that's great uh, because that will spell out the whole thing. And I'm going to let Paul talk to that uh, more so than myself because, uh, well, yeah, I, as uh, a as a presentation of Bayer Jazz Society, we're trying to do a special kind of thing. So uh, I I think it's going going to be something that revolves more around special guests rather than just an all out jam session, especially at um, at uh, Southern Cafe, just because of the atmosphere. The atmosphere seems more, it's like a uh, restaurant, and it's, it's, it's more conducive, I think, to uh, the, not a, a, an open jam session, but a performance and a presentation of the music uh, with special guests. So, and then I'll let Paul address that well, because well, he knows. Yeah, thank you. The 57th Street is more like a uh, their jam session on Monday is more like a like a schooling type of jam session where young people that can't quite play well enough yet will they come there and they will get an opportunity to get up. The people that are there there they understand that concept and they you know they're not disturbed by someone hitting a bunch of bad notes and so forth. So yeah. so that's why on my flyer I put. Uh, 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 skilled musicians welcome, in, in a sense, if you come in and, and someone in the band is invited you and they know you, and they know you can play, then I'm not going to have a problem with that. Uh, there was a young man that came up to me, uh, 
Hunter Kingston and wanted to play. And I looked at him and I said, wow, man, I'm, you seem like a nice guy. You probably can play. I said, do you know anybody here? Mm-hmm. Said, no. I said, does anybody know you? I said, well, th- th- that's a little worry- worrisome to me because this is, I can't afford that for the music, the level of the music to drop. Uh, so... So I, I told him, he said, well, he knew somebody here that knew somebody else. I said, well, bring them next week, <laughs> and then we'll consider getting you up. Because uh, when you go to New York and you go to them back in the day when I was a young musician, and you, you could, if you got up there to play, they stopped the song if you couldn't play. Wow, yeah. 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 I mean, that's how they, that's, yeah. how, that, that's the history you. of jam sessions that I grew up uh, yeah. with. Even yeah. when I was young, eighteen in San Francisco yeah. playing. Yeah, same here. Uh, yeah, yeah. I've, I've had this. I just, just uh, when I say amen to that, Paul. You're right. You know, I I remember yeah. when I was playing when I was seventeen and playing trombone. Uh, this one guy who was in college at the time, uh, man. If I hit one wrong note, man, <laughs> he give he give me that death that death stare, man, and you're right, they would stop yeah. the music, so, and that's not the kind of thing we want happening at, no. um, at, uh, Southern Cafe, we, or, have, or, or, either, or even at Kingston, right, you don't want to have to go through that, no. stopping the music, cause, because of the people, you know, right. the people are there to listen to jazz. You got a lot of people that have come in that, that say they can do something, get up there and can't do anything, once you just give them ten minutes to, to drive people out of the the, the spot that yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can't afford to. Yeah. Know, I know a couple of people that will come in, walk in that door, and, and, and to, to them they're they're a great musician, but everybody else knows they're horrible, and they'll run everybody out of there. So, yeah. uh, for these kind of restaurants that we're playing in, anyway, it's not. As a matter of fact, I'm I'm making new flyers, and I'm going to gingerly think about how I need to, what we need to say. Me and Sudia sit down, and we'll figure out what we want to say. Because we don't want to drive musicians away. Because everybody I I know that wants to come and play, they'll call me. And say, man, I'm coming by. I said, come on, you know, because they can play. You know, I'll let them, I'll, you know, the music are always still on a certain level. But on the other hand, you don't want too many people coming with big saxophone cases and trombone cases and sitting around buying uh, a, a drink of water or t- saying they don't want nothing. Sitting in the, the chairs that are there for people that are going to be eating. So, so that's the problem with, right? <laughs> like, I had that problem last week in the in the case. The guy came up and said, do you, uh, "Could you get these people to to move? Because they were sitting at a table and people were coming in to eat." Well, yeah. there's, nowhere oh. to, there's, there's nowhere to stand around. So, so I the, so the owner the owner asked you that. Yeah, come and eat and then play. And, and if you don't have no money and I invite you, I'll feed you. I'll buy some food for you. <laughs> You know, I've had to do that. I've got at least three or four people every week I'm feeding. I'm not even making any money. But then again, for the kind of organization that I'm trying to develop and run, I can't worry about making money. I'm not there uh, at my jam session to uh, make money. I'm there to spread the word of the music. So actually, I don't, to Kingston, I give all the money to the musicians so I can have more talented people there uh, performing with me. I mean, at the budget they give me, uh, a, a, a three piece would probably be what 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 you need to have in there. I've got about five folks in there, so that just lets you show you. And sometimes if I have a vocalist, I'll pay out of my pocket for the vocalist to come too. Wow. You know, if Kenny Worsley yeah. called me today, I'd, I'd give him a hundred dollars out of my pocket to come and sing because that brother is phenomenal. Yeah. You know, Ronda yeah. Benigni came. You know, different right. singers come up. You know, and that's coming out of the budget in my mind of the Barry Jazz Society. 
So if I ever get money, then I'll be able to do more things like this. Yeah. Well, more Wow. Yeah, I just want to uh, just want to tell both of you that you know we're out of time, but we certainly need to have you all on again and to talk more and play some music too. So yeah. I want the audience know that we're speaking to uh, Paul Tillman Smith and uh, Damu Sudi Ali about the Bay Area Jazz Society's uh, Sunday Jam, Sunday Jazz Jam, uh, as well as the um, When Is Your uh, and the, the Sunday Jazz Jam with uh, pianist uh, Damu Sudi Ali and special guests. Featuring Paul Tillman Smith on drums, Carl Lockett on guitar, and Alex Smith on bass, is every Sunday from five to eight uh, at the Southern Cafe Soul Food Bath, Soul Food Buffet, two thousand MacArthur Boulevard in Oakland. And skilled musicians are welcome. And uh, you can also visit the um, Chump Change. Uh, is it ChumpChangeRecords uh, dot com? Is that your website? It's, it's, it's ChumpChange dot com, and it's, I have, a, I have okay. a beautiful site, but it's got like. My, my, uh, I'm rebuilding it, and, and it should be up uh, by the end of this week. If okay. it's not already up, but uh, there were some people who were having a few problems getting to it recently, but I'm doing some work on it right now, so it should okay. be back up. Mm-hmm. All right, and Paul, and Barry, so, Jazz Society should be up, yeah, up when, shortly. When is uh, your jam session? What day and what time? Every Wednesday from 7 to 10, Kingston okay. to Cuisine. Uh, Telegraph and West Grand, right on the corner. Corner. I don't know the exact okay. address. You can look it up. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's tonight, seven to ten, mm-hmm. Wednesday. So mm-hmm. thank you both for joining us. And again, we we'll have to have you on uh, to talk some more about because we didn't even we didn't even read your bio, Paul. <laughs> oh man, and <laughs> I, I, I was I was so it. transfixed just listening <laughs> at all. It's, it's just history, man. We we got to write that book, uh, Paul. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, yeah, yeah and, I, right. and I'm going to help you because there's a lot. There is a lot of information. Somebody yeah, needs man. to write a book yeah. about Barry music. No one's done that yet. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's 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 a plan. So, um, have a good good jam session tonight, gentlemen, and uh, concert, and uh, look forward to talking to you further about everything. <laughs> Thank well, no, you. See you Thank tonight, you, right? Uh, no, I've got papers to write. Sorry, okay. but um, okay. you will see me. Um, one of these Wednesdays, but today is not going to. Today is not the Wednesday. It's happening. Okay. <laughs> Unfortunately for me, because I know it's going to really be wonderful. Well, it's wonderful talking to you. Good yeah, thanks a lot, Wanda. Thanks for having us. Oh, you're welcome. Talk, talk to you soon. Bye bye. Okay, Bye-bye. peace and blessing. Ah, <laughs> uh, good morning, Ben. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. Glad to have you on the air to talk about your wonderful film, um, Village of Peace. Oh, my goodness. It's just so fabulous. I mean, to be having your directorial debut with this film, it's like, okay, we remember you. We remember that film. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So are you the only one of your team that's going to be joining us this morning? I'm actually here with uh, my brother, Sam. He's a producer on the film. Okay, cool. And I was wondering, Sam, are you the older, older brother? I am, I am. I'm 28, Ben's 25. Oh, you all are really young. Wow. Doesn't feel like that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And and you all work together um, on uh, on the, uh, did you work together on the film Licks uh, last year that went to the South by Southwest Film Festival and won Best Picture? 
at Chelsea Film Festival. Did you work on that together as well, or or just you, uh, Ben, and Nicholas uh, worked on that, the producer um, that and was, director? That was just me and Nicholas and uh, another member of our team, Vinnie Hobbs. Mm-hmm. Okay. He was, okay. Uh, he was the editor for, for The Village of Peace, and he edited Licks, and I was a co-editor. Mm-hmm. Nice, nice. Yeah, well, congratulations on Village of Peace. Um, the story of how how you came to uh, to visit the uh, the Village of Peace uh, in uh, in Israel, um, you know, established by the, uh, the the Hebrew Israelite community, is really a fascinating one. And so I was wondering, um, maybe we could start there and then and then come back to your bios. Okay, great. So, um, yeah, so um, I think, Sam, um, are you the one that um, brought the story uh, or vice versa? Yeah, so uh, the way we learned about the community is uh, Ben and I went on Birthright in 2010, mm-hmm. and uh, we went out to Israel, uh, and that's when we came across the community. So uh, the story goes, uh, when I was a teenager, uh, I was working at the Oakland Marriott in downtown Oakland, and uh uh, I met someone named there by the by the name of Shalim Edwards, and Shalim and I became very very close. Um, he was actually from the community, uh, the Village of Peace, but um, I did not know that he didn't really talk about his community or where he was from. I knew he was from Israel, um, and so what happened was when his mother and his sister uh, came to visit, um, I automatically grew really close with them. And uh, you know, fast forward to 2010 when Ben and I. Uh, went to Israel on birthright. We ended up extending our trip and uh, taking a trip down to Demona, which is where the community is located. Um, so, um, you know, I, I had to go visit. I wanted to go uh, see Rakida and Dee, um, which is Shalim's mother and uh, sister. And so when we went to the community, we really had no idea uh, what to expect. Uh, we were actually not expecting anything. We were just going there to visit um, Shalim's mom and sisters. Uh, we came at a, a time where it was Unity Week, uh, which is a huge, uh, lively festival that goes on in the community. Um, a lot of song and dance, um, a lot of really good food, vegan food, um, and it's just a it's a really uh, amazing time to uh, to have visited. So uh, we got exposed to the whole community. Um, and we were completely blown away. We had a lot of questions, and uh, we couldn't stop asking them. Um, and that's where we first learned about uh, the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, Ben, um, talk about, about your visit uh, to, um, to the community and, and sort of, you know, what you thought about the story. Yeah, um like Sam said, you know, we we got there and there was this this huge festival going on, and Shalim's sister was kind of giving us the the background and the history behind um, how this place was founded, and it was just a really incredible story. I mean, it was almost against all odds that they, during the civil rights movement, and no one's ever heard of this place during the civil rights movement people actually migrated from Chicago and and really self-determined people started their own community, a very disciplined place. Um, there's a lot of rules, but uh, it's all, I mean, it's just, a, it was just really moving to see, um, I guess, the power they had, and the, the discipline they had. Um, so, um, 
Yeah, it was just great. I, I, I just finished film school, and we were traveling, and we were looking for a, a project to work on. And no one had heard of this place, and we were like, this is perfect. This this should be our first project. Um, so we we returned home, and then we started talking with other members of our team um, back here. And that's how the project started. Oh, well, it's so perfect that you just be finishing, um, you know, film school in Los Angeles where you graduated with honors. Which film school did you go to? I went to a, it was a smaller film school. It's called Columbia College of Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Nice, nice, yeah. So it was great to have a brother with the technical skills, huh, huh Sam? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, because that's something that I don't have. I, I worked in television for a few years, but it was just more hands-on. Ben has definitely the more educational background of film and also the hands-on as well. So it was a, it was a good uh, good collaboration. Yeah, yeah. And and you also, um, you know, sort of honed your skills in Los Angeles as well. Um, were you there and then, Ben, you decided to go to L.A. because your brother was already there working in television production? Uh, I think we moved down there around the same time, actually. Um, I was already going to film school uh, prior to that, but Mm -hmm. definitely after film school, I worked um, at the same company as him. Um, I worked there for a few months, almost a year, actually, um, just trying to to figure out the industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And you're both uh, born and raised in Oakland, huh? Yep, born in born in Oakland, kind of raised half and half in Berkeley and Oakland. Okay, okay. So Berkeley Public Schools, Oakland Public Schools, or? Uh, I went to Berkeley Public Schools. Um, I went to Sam, this is Sam, by the way. I went to Berkeley Public <laughs> Schools, and then also uh, I went to Albany High for most of, most of high school. Okay, yeah. What about you, Ben? Yeah, I went to only Berkeley schools my whole life. Um, went to Berkeley High. Okay, you're Berkeley High alumni. Okay, cool. Yeah, I was in the uh, cast cast program, the communication arts and sciences. That's when I um, first learned pretty much how to make video. Awesome, awesome. Yeah. So the Village of Peace explores a community of African Americans from Chicago, who in 1969 began a two-year migration to Demona, Israel, which you mentioned, and the founders of the village um, are recounting their epic journey and. Uh, against a backdrop of oppression and upheaval in Chicago through the unfamiliar terrain of Liberia to what they now call home in the Negev Desert. And there are 300 people who made the original migration, and today there are over 5,000 Hebrew, African Hebrew Israelites in Israel. So talk about these four villagers that who's, you know give you these great stories as you um, sort of look at their culture. They say they're not... They're not Jews. They're they're African Hebrew Israelites, um, and they follow the uh, interpretation of the Torah, uh, the Hebrew Bible, and 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 among those practices I'm reading from your website um, uh, include polygamy, natural birth, veganism, and a rigorous emphasis on health. So when the film opens, um, you are driving around, riding around in the jeep, and I'm like. And I was kind of confused initially because I'm like, I, I, I was like the village of peace, and yet we're riding around in an army jeep. What's going on here? Uh, yeah, so maybe you could talk about, you know, um, sort of these various stories and, and, and from what it looks like initially when 
uh, African Americans arrived in Israel, they weren't necessarily welcomed with open arms by the government. But now they're, you know, after all these years, they've been become sort of really integrated into Israeli society, and the young people have to serve in the military when they finish high school. So, why don't you talk about sort of these these stories that uh, that come out, you know, historic as well as present in your interviews? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, before we even started filming, um, we kind of came up with what kind of story we want to tell. We didn't want it to be a very informational documentary. We wanted it to be as personal as possible. Um, so we, we came up with a, an idea for archetype for characters of the best way to, to encompass the entire village and kind of bring out the history behind everything. Um, bring out all the different factors, all the the different cultural aspects of life there, like polygamy, um, veganism, and also the future of the village. Like, will this place continue to exist the way it exists now? Um, So we came up with four-character concept, where two of the characters would be older, who would be uh, the founders of the village who grew up in the United States and made that decision to, to move there. And then two of the characters would be younger who were born in the village and who are pretty much the future of the village and really kind of try to compare and contrast their upbringings and where they're headed now and their their, uh, philosophy on life. So we wanted to choose a man and a woman as the older because uh, we wanted to explore the polygamy factor um, from two different angles. And uh, men and women as younger soldiers who um, are going into this lifestyle in the future. Um, so that's where the concept for the four characters came up. And when we got there, um, we met these these four people, and they were a perfect uh, perfect match. They had really interesting stories, and especially the elders had uh, a lot of history. Um, to share and a lot of personal stories, so we thought it would be a, a perfect match. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Tell us their names. Uh, the two younger um, uh, uh, subjects that that you um, you and like we meet the young man in the jeep, and he's also when he's not driving around the jeep, he's making music, and you you actually film him in the studio. And then the young woman, she's making a dress for her friend who's getting. Uh, getting married, and we see her mother sort of there in in the um, the sewing room uh, as sort of like a consultant to help her, you know, make sure I guess that it, it you know the design, you know, is is what she wants it to be. Um, and then and then the elders, um, yeah, the the two elders. I mean, you, you talk to a lot of people, but the two elders, you know, they're really interesting. I wonder if you could um, maybe give us their names and. Um, yeah, and, and tell us how it was for you, um, sort of, I don't know if you've been in Israel before, um, but just sort of landing in this community, which is it's almost like they're they're not of this world. I mean, it's like a real different kind of place. Yeah, so uh, the characters, um, the first character, the, the, the younger gentleman is Elamar, and that's actually my one of my best friend's brother. Uh, that's Shalim's brother. His name is Elamar, and he was the one driving around in the army jeep. And then there's Mati La, who was uh, making the wedding dress uh, for the sister that was getting married. Um, there's Prince Kiskiahu, which is one of the elders, one of the first people to the community. 
um, and there's Takia, and she is one of the crown sisters of the community. Um, so, for me, I mean, the, it was it was overwhelming the experience um, that we had um, coming there, learning about the community. Uh, obviously, we did our due diligence and, 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 and read up a lot and studied a lot, but uh, we knew we weren't going to get um, the authentic perspective until we went to the community and made this film. So um, it was just a, it was an amazing experience, uh, I know for myself, uh, I know for my brother, uh, going to the community and uh, hearing firsthand uh, these personal stories. Um, and, you know, they're in the, you know, not only the collective story, uh, but the individual, you know, experience and perspective of, of these four characters. Um, so, I mean, there was a lot we took away from it, and uh, I'll let my brother chime in and add his. Yeah, yeah, it was, a, it was a very interesting place, a lot going on. Um, and, yeah, I'm sorry, I forget the question. <laughs> Uh, the question had to do with how how it was for you being uh, in this community, which is very different from from what I saw in the film. Any community that you might have experienced, um, you know, here in the West um, or or even elsewhere, it's a very very different kind of place. They uh, they don't you know they're they don't have any. Um, any any weapons on you know in the village, they um, you know there are no there are no fights, um, there's no discord, uh, you know the the elder it describes it in the film you know sort of the principles of how things work there there are no drugs <laughs> there's no you know alcoholism I don't know if they can even have alcohol in the place um, yeah they there it's a real disciplined. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, community. It 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 it's uh, it was awesome. I mean, you feel very welcome there and very safe. Mm-hmm. You never yeah. really are worried about anything. I mean, walking around in the United States, you feel like you always have to look out for for something. Um, around there, you don't have to worry about anything. You're you're walking around. People are very friendly. It's like a huge family almost. There's little kids running around. Um, and the, they say it takes a village to, to raise a child. That's really how they feel. Like there's there's kids running around, and if it's not your mom or not your dad, like they see you doing something wrong, they're gonna they're gonna talk to you. And it's yeah, it's just like a very communal place, and that's pretty rare to find um, out here in the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was wondering, um, you know, when I uh, saw. LMR, um, you know, driving the uh, the jeep, and uh, and Matila, you know, having you know in her uniform, and, and them talking about, well, Matila specifically talking about how when she met other uh, Israeli citizens, you know, when when she became a, you know had to join the army, that they had never heard of her. So how is that? You know that that. This community is so uh, removed from the day-to-day of Israeli society that some people in Israel don't even know that there is such a place. Mm-hmm. Well, 
Dimona is located um, in the south of Israel. It's in the in the Negev Desert. Um, it's a very unpopulated area in general. Um, so the community is pretty remote. Um, if you if you ask anyone in southern Israel, they're definitely going to be familiar with the community. But if you go up north to to Haifa, or sometimes in Tel Aviv or Jerusalem, um, the 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 Israelis, some of them have never um, heard of this place, but them entering the, the IDF, the army, um, is relatively a new thing. Um, I believe the first member of the community to join the army was in 2004. So um, it, that's kind of how they're being more integrated these days into the, into the normal Israeli society, um, but it's still relatively new, so there's a lot of people who've never heard of them. But um, it's becoming, they're becoming more and more integrated. So at this point, you know, more and more people are hearing of them. They they have a, a restaurant in Tel Aviv, um, a vegan restaurant right on uh, Ben Yehuda Street, one of the main strips. Um, and there's a, a lot of vegans who go there, just Israeli vegans. So they're starting to get their name out there uh, more and more. And they, and they have been um, throughout the history. It's just been a slow process. And one of that. That's partly the reason that, you know, this is something that we felt like we had, this story is something that we had to tell is because uh, the U.S., I mean, very, very few people know about the community that are in the U.S. Uh, in Israel, you still have a large part of Israel, and Israel is a pretty small space, but you have a large, uh, large number of people that have never heard of this community. And so, you know, being that it is such an amazing community, um, and have such an amazing story. Um, that's you know part of what inspired us. That we like so no one's told this story. Um, and we need to get it out there. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Your film is actually screening um, this afternoon at Scene Arts in Palo Alto, right? Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah. At uh, three fifty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At 3.50 p.m., and then it's going to be screening again um, at the Castro Theater in San Francisco on Friday, um, August 1st at 2 in the Grand Lake in Oakland on Friday, August 8th at 2.35, so folks can get tickets to see the wonderful film. Um, so what what is uh, what is the difference between, uh, in, in, uh, I guess, philosophically and uh, between um, the African Hebrew Israelites and the Jews, um, you know, in uh, I guess I don't know if you would call them regular Jews, but anyway, um, the other community, and because they both they both follow the Torah, right? Yeah, so they both follow the Torah. Um, they just interpret it differently, and I think they interpret uh, the history differently. Um, the African Hebrews believe that uh, when the Romans invaded Israel, they they migrated into Africa. And then we're we're taken to the the West um, as slaves, so they believe that's their uh, ancestry. The the the, uh, the biblical Hebrews, and they believe that Judaism is uh, comes from the Hebrews as well, but it's more of a religion, more of an off branch with rabbis and and interpretations of the Torah that they don't necessarily agree with. Um, so they just in, interpret the the Torah differently than the than the Jews, but they actually have a lot of similarities as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You have um, a lot of um, 
you know, introductory footage when you're giving the history that um, points to um, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, speaking about the promised land that he might not get there, you know, with us, but that you know he's seen it, and um, and as uh, I don't know if you're speaking to one of the elders or what, but they talk about that's the promised land that they found when they um, they went to Israel. Yeah, that was a really interesting um, thing that was brought to our attention. Uh, when we were interviewing the, the elder, he was actually the first person to, to go to Israel as a scout, um, Prince Kiskiahu. He uh, told us that they didn't learn about that speech until until after they were already in Israel. And at that time, they were in Liberia. But it was 28 days after after Martin Luther King gave that speech is when he landed in, in Israel. So they they took it as like a as like a omen because um, they didn't they didn't realize that fact until afterward they were in Liberia and Israel they didn't have access to that information but when they when they discovered that it just uh, it kind of yeah they they considered it a huge omen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and um, and then they also you know spoke about how America was in their home and and how and you had. Muhammad Ali, and you had Hajj Malik al-Shabazz or Malcolm X, you know, all speaking about um, that America was not the home for the person of African descent and and that this journey was one that was not unusual, you know, given the fact that, you know, our ancestors, African people's ancestors uh, here in, in the West were brought here most most likely because of the uh, institution of, of European uh, slave trade. So, um, so yeah, this was all a part of your research prior to going, right? Yeah, that was a part of the research. And I guess with, with the archive footage, uh, it wasn't necessarily that all these people were on the, the same path, um, but we just kind of tried to show the, the climate at the time um, and we thought those clips really demonstrated um, some of the some of the political climate at the time mm-hmm. to, to yeah, help yeah. Uh, drive the point home, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, their you know migration to um, uh, to Israel and and establishing um, you know Damona in the Negev Desert as you know as you know place of refuge uh, is certainly uh, another diaspora um, citizenship story um, that is not really well known. And I was really, really surprised when I read that the Hebrew Israelites um, that you um, are sharing the story of are not necessarily the same uh, Hebrew Israelite community in Chicago that you know they have the restaurants and they have different lines of of, of foods, vegan foods. Um, yeah, I thought they were all the same people, same community. Yeah, in in the United States, there are um, different sects of African Hebrew Israelites that have a different ideology. Um, there's definitely more than than one group. There's uh, numerous groups. Um, the African Hebrew Israelites who who went to Israel. Uh, some of them do still live in the United States, and some of them do have restaurants. Um, I know they have one in in Atlanta. Um, 
I think they they have one in Chicago, but there are uh, different groups. Like in New York, there's a um, different group. I know in Florida, there's another another one. Um, so yeah, we just want to make the distinction that that, that not all African Hebrew Israelites um, are under the same ideology or practice. And, and my last question has to do with um, why why the military service, um, you know, one of the, the uh, heads of the family that you, um, you, you're having dinner, well, they're having dinner and you're at dinner with them, your camera is anyway, <laughs> and, and, uh, <laughs> and I, don't, I don't remember his name, you could tell us his name, um, father, and he's, uh, it's the father of um, uh, El Amar. I believe, and uh, they're talking, and and he speaks, um, I think, in another uh, part of the film about this this military service, and he says, well, you know, sort of comes with the with the with the territory, you know, we're Israeli citizens, and this is what what they do, and this is what we do now because you know we're part of the the system. Uh, but I was just thinking, it seems like a conflict of interest because if you're the village of peace, and then your kids have to serve in the military. Uh, how how you know how do they reconcile you know philosophically around that because it seems like a contradiction yeah um definitely um i think that you know they they've been in uh in israel since since the late 60s um and they've had a lot of problems with the government um and then uh, he also mentions there's a reconciliation about 20 years ago so I mean, they, they've they been back and forth and, and trying to improve relations. Um, at this point in time, their relation is, is probably the best it's ever been, and uh, a large part of that has to do with them um, entering the entering the military. Um, it's not, I don't think, required 100% um, for, for the children to go to the military, but these days the, the children are, are doing that to help the status of the community. Um, they're trying to receive citizenship, and in Israel, you are um, obligated to go to the military as an Israeli citizen. Um, and they, I guess, they're trying to do their part. Um, I don't think they they necessarily want to go, um, but uh, some of the kids, some of the kids do. Um, they're they're like I said, more integrated um, with Israeli society these days. And uh, they feel that it's part of their duty, as I guess, as citizens, to to join the IDF. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, you know, uh, since you're you're from the Bay Area, you know, you were born in, born here and and raised here. Um, you probably have some of that activism kind of energy in your in your DNA. Uh, <laughs> so I was wondering, like, it's not on camera, but did you raise the issue of the Palestinians with anybody? And what's going yeah, on there? Yeah, we and, had those conversations um, off off camera. We we kind of had right. those conversations. We had a little bit of the conversation on camera, um, but our our uh, goal, our mission of making this film, really was is kind of an unrelated thing. And if we if we even attempted to tackle such a complicated issue within this film, it it kind of I feel like would have been a distraction. Um, 
because that's not really what their story is about. It's uh, 100% uh, entirely different story, and we just felt like it would it would kind of take away take away exactly from their from their story. <laughs> oh yeah, well, I understand. Um, you know how it didn't quite work. You know in your in your tight you know tight narrative. Um, I was wondering what were the conversations off camera um, when 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 you raised them around you know, the conflict that Israel has with the Palestinians around around their homeland. Yeah. Um well when we talked to the to the Minister of Information, um his name is Sara Amadiel. He's the, the father that you were talking about earlier. Oh at the, at yes. The table. Okay. Yes. Um he actually came out to, to LA for uh, a screening at the Pan African Film Festival. Nice. And that was he he did the uh, the Q and A with us after, and that's one of the questions that we got. And his answer was pretty much that they, uh, you know, they believe in peace, they they want peace, and they said that they they really believe that most Israelis and most Palestinians could live in peace. It's the extremists on on both sides who um, who are causing the issues, and you know they think it's a sad situation they they want to do their best to broker any kind of peace deal they actually want to be involved in the peace process themselves um they consider them they consider themselves being a light to the nations they see themselves as more of the solution um and being that um entity that's going to be able to broker um some type of um peace in the land so um I think they, they, they're right where they're supposed to be. Um, and, you know, I mean, if you look at this community, it's the village of peace in one uh, in, a, in a really um, violent area, in an area that's been, you know, uh, fought over for, you know, thousands of years. Uh, they're right in the middle of it, and they have a, a community there that's really peaceful. And um, I think they see themselves as a, as a model, like I said, as a light into other nations. And... Uh, I think there 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 would be a good moderator to um or a good example at least to help you know help with the peace process. Mhm. Yeah, yeah. So, um presently um they're just um just modeling the type of uh of community that's possible. Um is there has anything happened where they can actually have actually been can have actually started um, trying to, I guess, more directly influence the uh, the peace process uh, between uh, Israel, their government, and and the Palestinians. Uh, I think there has been efforts, but we we didn't really go too deep, so I, I can't say for sure. And if if there were, yeah, I don't know the the specifics. Okay. Yeah. And and uh is anyone going to be there at any of the screenings from uh from the Hebrew Israelite community uh from Demona? Uh not at the screening today. Uh we may have a couple people um at the Castro or at Grand Lake Theater. So um Oh, nice. That'll be nice. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, people that that are living here, like your friend, um, or people that have flown in specifically for this. Um, I don't think they are. No one from the community is planning on flying out, as far as I know yet. 
Um, but probably Shalim, uh, my good friend, will be at one of the two screenings, um, either okay. at the Castro or the Grand Lake Theater. Okay. So Shalim, um, he still lives here as well? He goes yep, back and forth? In Oakland, yeah. Oh, nice, nice. Oh, that's great. Oh, it's too bad he couldn't have joined us. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Are you going to have a, a theatrical release um, after the festival? Uh. Hopefully, <laughs> um, I think <laughs> I think uh, we're gonna try to uh, just rent theaters privately and and then um, try to try to do our own screenings um, in theaters. Okay, well, keep us posted. Yeah, um, yeah. So if you want to um, follow the news and and find out about screenings and upcoming shows, you could go to villageofpeacemovie dot com. Also, you could uh, like our Facebook page, um, Village of Peace, and uh, keep updated with with upcoming screenings and, and whatnot. Okay, cool, excellent. So, you have a final question, if you all have time. I was just wondering, uh, you know, as as artists, as you know, directors, filmmakers, I'm sure each experience, uh, you know, each time you make a film, um, uh, even if it's your debut film, it sort of changes you and and you know, in a way that you you carry forward, you know, this this particular uh, new person that you become as an artist, you know, as a director, um, you know, into your next prize. And I was wondering um, how how this particular story um, has touched you in a way, um, you know, that you can identify because maybe some of the stuff is still coming up um, that that you know is sort of put you in a in a direction like. Now you know this is this is why you make films or something like that. So wanna can you like give us some something real deep like that to think about? <laughs> <laughs> I'll try my best. Um yeah, I mean for me it was, it was kind of a I guess it showed the power of of uh when you really when you really try to focus on something and uh see it through. I mean, we had never made a, a film before. So this was a kind of a crazy thing to try to attempt to do at like whatever 22 years old or at any age for that matter. Um so I mean it wasn't even like we really thought about it. We just decided this is what we're going to do and we worked hard. It took 3 years to do. It was a lot of planning, a lot of preparation, a lot of mistakes that were made. Um and I guess just really sticking through the entire thing it was hard like there was a lot of times where we didn't know if we were going to end up finishing the the movie um or how good it would be or anything so i guess when you really just set your mind to something um and 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 put in the time and the effort and the creative energy um you know it could it could uh, lead to to big things and uh definitely am happy with the way it turned out um and yeah, it's almost like a unreal thing that that uh, this film was even made in the first place, um, given all the things that had to come together to make it happen. Um, so yeah, it was great, and just working with my brother and the rest of the team uh, just built a lot of confidence, I guess, in uh, for f- any future projects that that uh, I'm going to do myself or with them. Um, just uh, knowing that we we have that ability to to put something together. Was a uh, was a big step for me. Yeah. Here's Sam. 
Oh, good. Um, and it's funny, like Ben said, um, you know, a lot of things had to come together for us to, to film this, but just as the Village of Peace, as the community was established, they just went to Israel um, and they just showed up there. Uh, we kind of did the same thing. Uh, we, we just showed up uh, to, the, to the community, to the Village of Peace, uh, and we hired everybody and we bought all the plane tickets and um, we didn't even have the green light to, to film the movie. We just kind of showed up, had a meeting with them, and uh, it was all, you know, kind of um, agreed upon last minute. Um, so um, that's it's it's pretty interesting how, how things work out. But, um, yeah, the, I mean, just the experience, um, you know, living in the community um, for a, a couple weeks, um, it definitely – has an impact on you. Uh, it definitely changes you. Uh, minor things, even just, you know, as far as like my personal diet, you know, when I went to the community, I ate vegan for the entire time of being there. Um, and it was delicious too, I might add. Um, it really changed uh, it changed my diet and made me realize some things. So I, I, when I first uh, went to the community, that's when I stopped eating pork. Um, and then my last time in the community, which was you know three three weeks ago, um, now I stopped eating red meat. And so I'm on my I'm on my slow journey, my slow path to becoming vegan. Um, you know, taking baby steps. And then um, there's a lot of things that you take away from the community. I mean, this is a real community, and you know there aren't really many real communities left. Um, so their, 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 um, sense of togetherness, their unity, um, their, their lifestyle, it's all very, very inspiring. And, um, it's, uh, it's just, uh, it's just a way of life that, uh, once you experience, uh, you, you can never forget. And, uh, I think anybody would adapt something from the community. And and uh, Shalim, your friend, uh, how how does he? What does he think of the film? Um, you said you were just there. Um, uh, let's see, um, three weeks ago. So, what did the what does the community think of the project, the product? Now that you're finished. Well, we the film? we we did four screenings uh, in the oh, community okay. when we were there, um, and most people in the community had never seen the film uh, up until when we did the the four screenings. So. Uh, it was it was overwhelmingly positive. Uh, people really really liked the film. They really uh, appreciated the film. Uh, we got a lot of really really good feedback uh, in the community. As far as Shalim goes, uh, <laughs> he actually has never seen the film. I won't let him watch it um, until he sees it in theater. So that's how I'm certain <laughs> that he's going to show up to one of these screenings in Grand Lake or in Castro because he he still has never seen the film that has you know starring his brother and his father and his. Uh, friends. Oh wow! So you, you're saying that when you went to his home to shoot it, he wasn't there. He was here. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I've never been in Israel at the same time as Shalim. So. Oh wow! Oh, that's gonna be really special. Oh. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. People definitely need to, need to follow you on at your website, Village of Peace. Um, uh, movie.com because I'm sure you're going to have like photographs and things like that after the screen is where he's there and because uh, I know you you it's you you put like things like that on your website. Oh, how exciting! Oh, that's going to yeah. be wonderful. Oh, great! <laughs> yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, congratulations and um, 
yeah, maybe we can have um, Shalim on, you know, once he's seen it. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm, uh, I'm Talk more about it. That'd be really fun. Yeah, I'm excited to have him see it and uh, see what he thinks about it. Well, gosh, well, congratulations on a wonderful film, great story. So happy that you're you were inspired to uh, to share with us, uh, you know, cinematically because um, you know I'm sure there are a lot of people that do not know of this this wonderful community of people of African descent in the desert in Israel. Uh, Thank you so much, Wanda. Thank you, Wanda. Appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. You take good care. All right. <laughs> bye bye. Bye. So we are going to close the show with uh, another song um, <laughs> uh, by Ben Vereen. Um, I think we're just on a Ben Vereen kind of kind of thing now. So I'm going to play uh, a song in my heart. A song in my heart I behold Your adorable face Just a song at the start But it soon Is a hymn to your grace Then the music swells I'm touching your It tells me you're standing near At the sound of your voice Heaven opens its portal to me I cannot help but rejoice That love such as ours came to be But I always knew I would live my life through With a song in my heart For all of you At the sound of your voice It's portals to me I cannot help but rejoice That a love such as ours came to be But I always knew I would live my life through With a song in my heart Yes.